game designer for Atari 2600 games, Yars Revenge, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Without further ado, Howard Scott Warshaw. Thanks for having me. The Toronto Pet Users Group meeting. Howard. I'd just like to say it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. I hope everyone's aware of my latest book. Yes. Uh, would you like to say something about it now or wait till? Well, I, I'd mention it now and then, you know, we could talk about it more later. Okay, great. I just want to say, you know, I don't know if everybody should know that I wrote this book, Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry, which is essentially my memoir of being in video games and my life both before and after and how much Atari has reverberated in my life. It's also the story of how you know, every great success uh, usually engenders a tragic flaw. And the challenge is to see if you can spot the flaw and deal with it before it kills you. And that was uh, a big part of what happened at Atari and in other facets of uh, things I've been involved with. So uh, it's a fun book. It's a historically accurate book and explains uh, a lot of things about all my games, Atari and the uh, video game crash, if you want to know really why that happened, the myriad reasons. Well, you know, I'm going to ask questions about that. So um, thank you for bringing that up. And uh, as an aside, Howard, um, this was a couple months ago. Somebody commented online that said, Nico, you need to get Howard's book. You need to get it. And uh, so, I've so what happened? Well, I've been getting it digitally, but I'm going to get a physical copy. I'm going to send it to you to sign, please, if that's okay. Um, I generally don't accept mail-in autographs, but uh, we can work something out. You can always order an autograph copy from onceuponatari.com. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you. Um, I'm going to dive into some questions. What was your childhood like? I understand that you grew up in Colorado and New Jersey, right? What was your childhood like? My childhood was an interesting experience and frustration. Uh, I, was, I was born in Colorado, but I only spent two weeks there. I spent uh, the vast majority of my childhood in New Jersey. And uh, it was a frustrating experience for me because I think I always wanted to become an adult. And I was very frustrated with being a child and all the disempowerment that childhood entails. And it's so much about what you can't do or what you can't have. You can't even get good answers to questions as a kid. I would ask a lot of what I thought were interesting questions. And I think a lot of adults were very frustrated because they don't expect kids to ask these kind of questions. So uh, I wouldn't really get answers. And then people would try to placate me or just try and tell me how things are. I grew up seeing how things were, and I could also see how people kept telling me that's that's not how things are. 
And so it was a very early age where I realized I'm not going to get a real deal with adults until I'm an adult, maybe even then. I also felt like the great thing about adulthood is when you get to be an adult, you get to do anything you want, anytime you want. That was my picture of adulthood as a kid. And so my, most of my childhood was a drive to become an adult. So that's what my childhood was like. It was also an acute awareness that whatever it is I'm going to do in my life, because I always felt I had something to do in my life. I always felt there were bigger things for me to do, places for me to go. I was always very acutely aware that it wasn't where I was. It wasn't what was happening. I couldn't seem to make now a big thing in my life. I could only look to the future for uh, some satisfaction or something I would enjoy. And so that was that was my childhood. I want to ask you the obvious question of what was your first computer? But before I get to that, were you interested in science and technology as a kid? And what sparked your interest in things about the world, about the future? Uh, as a kid, I had kind of an existential bent. And what I mean by that is uh, things like, you know, uh, organized religion and stuff like this, which everybody wanted me to get involved in, held no interest for me. I never bought into the stories that people would tell me about how you're supposed to believe and how you're supposed to think and feel. But I tried to figure out what the actual truth of things was. And there's no way to know that when you're a kid. Uh, there's no way to know that as an adult. So it's even tougher. So I, it was always a striving for knowledge. So things that were important to me uh, were things like a sense of humor. A sense of humor was very important to me because, uh, you know, what I like to say is that my father taught me the value of a sense of humor and my mother taught me the need for a sense of humor. And uh, so that was a strong value that I had. Also, not so much learning because school wasn't very school wasn't very interesting or compelling for me, but finding things out and understanding things and understanding people and understanding what goes on in other people's heads and minds. Those were the kinds of things I really thought about a lot and paid a lot of attention to as I was growing up. So some of the things that most people are involved in or running around with and dealing with, I really didn't get that involved in that. I did, however, play a lot of poker. Poker was tremendously compelling for me, as well as a reasonable income source early on. So from the time I was 13 or so, I was just I just played all the poker I could and tried to get through and out of high school as fast as I could and then see what's next. Because it just I just had this tremendous sense that life is waiting for me, but I'm not there yet. And I can't wait to get there, but I have to wait. And uh, so I sort of slogged through and tried to find all the fun that I could where I could. Does that answer your question? I think you're muted. The there system crashed. I just got back on. So unfortunately, I didn't hear anything. Oh, well, you missed a great answer. I missed it. I'll have to catch it on the video on the way back. Um, what was your first computer? Uh, do you mean the first computer I worked on or the first computer I owned? You, that you owned and worked on. 
the first computer I worked now, I had the opportunity in 10th grade to start working on a computer because I was in at a school, a place called Scotch Plains, New Jersey. And Rutgers University isn't all that far from there. And they had a big computer. This is like mid 70s. So they had a computer terminal in my high school. And a lot of my friends would get on it and start programming. They were doing APL and stuff like that. And I was not interested in it at all. So it was like I had the opportunity to start getting involved in computers from 10th grade. And I just didn't. I mean, I intentionally didn't. My friends got into it. I didn't do it. I just wanted them to stop playing with the computer and come play poker. <laughs> so uh, when I got into college, I still avoided it. I didn't go into I mean, you asked me, like, what was I interested in in school? Like as a kid, as a kid, the only subject that was really compelling for me was math. Math was interesting because math made sense. Everything about math just made sense. And I liked that because everything else seemed like it was a kind of a load of crap that people were trying to sell. And I got the feeling a lot of people didn't really understand a lot of what they were selling. Some science classes were interesting to me. I hated history. I really hated English classes. I hated English classes when people would tell me how to interpret things because I would read them and I would say, okay, I get the idea of I think what they're saying. And then people say, no, no, that's not what they mean. They mean this and this. And I would say, this person's been dead for 400 years. Are you really sure you know what they were talking about? And it's uh, that was always frustrating for me. So math was, I, was, I enjoyed math. That was fun. Some science was interesting, and the rest of it was pretty uninteresting until there was one class I really enjoyed growing up, and that was theater of the absurd. I took that in high school, and that was very compelling. I got to write, so I did a little playwriting and uh, creating some goofy creative. So I always wanted to create. I always wanted to create usually some form of entertainment. So that was compelling, but I avoided computers like the plague. And when I got into college, I continued to avoid it. I started off as an economics major. I added a math major. But uh, one day in the middle of my sophomore year, uh, as an economics major, my econ advisor told me, you know, if you're going to get anywhere in economics, you really pretty much have got to have some computers. And I thought, OK, I'm not going to be able to avoid it any longer. What year was this with your econ professor? What's that? What year was that with the econ? Uh, it was the middle of my sophomore year. So this is late 76. Okay. This is late 76 or early 77. It's late 76. Uh, so I went and found the guy who was teaching an intro to Fortran course. So somebody was teaching an intro to Fortran course. And I walked into his office. This is the middle of a 14-week semester. And I said, hey, I want to add your course. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, what do you mean you want to add my course? I said, you know, I, I had done this thing. I had done, I never was a big student. But when I got to college, I really tried to apply myself and I was a better student. So I got uh, this thing called Tulane Scholars, which means I had at least like a 3-4 QM or something. And so... Uh, since I was a Tulane scholar, then supposedly, usually what all that means is you get to go to a wine and cheese at the president's house the first week of school, and then that's it. That's all there was to that. But uh, theoretically, you're supposed to have some curriculum options. So I walked into this guy's office. I said, hey, you know, I want to add your course. 
goes, what do you want to add my course? I said, well, I'm a Tulane scholar. I'm supposed to be able to create a curriculum. So I'd like to add your course now. And he says, okay. He figured he would just give me enough rope to hang myself. And because uh, I was like, you know, a high energy, fast talking New York suburban dude in New Orleans. And this guy was a down home redneck. He was a PhD in chemical engineering, but he was totally a redneck. And I was this Yankee invader. And I think something about this that really bugged him about me. And, you know, we always had this like weird tension going on, but we found a way to really use each other. We each, we knew each other to our own best advantage in a sense. So it was kind of an interesting relationship. But uh, he figured, okay, I'll give this Yankee enough rope to hang himself. So he just told me where I could get the book and where the computer lab was. And they had an IBM 7044. That was the computer. We use punch cards, right? You had to actually type your punch cards out. You had to create the punch cards, submit a deck to the operator, and they would run your, your program. And then they would put a listing in the cubby hole for you and you'd pick it up. That's the way you programmed a computer. And I, I, so that night, I grabbed the book, I went to the computer lab, I started looking through it. And that night, I did the entire first half of the course. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, this is so great. Uh, computers were a revelation to me because I was drowning in economics to some degree because I liked the theory of it. But you have to write papers, you have to read these long meandering books, and I'm, I'm a very slow reader, and it was very frustrating. I never really knew what computers were about. And when I finally got to play with or program a computer, I thought, this is great. This is great. Computers, you just, all you have to do is solve puzzles and, you know, figure out interesting ways of do algorithms. All that stuff just really spoke to me. It was just, there was something innately uh, agreeable about it and fun for me. So after that, I finished my econ, I finished my math major, but I just decided, wow, computers are where it's at. Now I don't have to, I don't have to uh, write long papers. I just have to write programs. I don't have to read long meandering books because computer books are very straightforward. I can breeze through them and get what's going on. And, and the other thing was all the listings came out on fan fold paper, right? The big fan fold paper, the giant listings used to come out on. And the great thing about that paper was it was perfect for cleaning pot, for getting the seeds out of pot. You can, you know, break up the pot and then you could use the uh, paper to shake out the seeds and stuff. I mean, you remember when pot had seeds? Oh my God, is anybody that old? So uh yeah really i'll tell you and it was so it was like great it was brilliant and uh so i just dove into computers so i mean the first time i ever had anything to do with the computer was the ibm 7044 at this is like late 76 and by may of 79 I was graduating with my master's of engineering and computers and ready to go out in the world and be a computer jockey. And uh, you were hired by HP. Was that your first job? I went to work for Hewlett Packard. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was well, in graduate school. You, we, go ahead. What were you doing for HP? 
How long did I work for HP? Yeah, and what were you doing for them? Uh, I went to HP in August of 79, right after I graduated. And I was doing, I was a, what they call an MTS, a multi-terminal systems engineer. I was doing networking. Uh, in college, I had actually written some packet switching algorithms and stuff that was actually submitted for ARPANET usage, which is the precursor to the internet. And uh, so I, I had a very, un, and it was very unusual back then. I mean, I had some good low level assembly programming and some real nitty gritty communications background uh, in college. So when I came out, I was working at Hewlett Packard on networking and I was there about a year and a quarter and it was miserable. It was just miserable because I liked, I really loved microprocessor based real time control systems. That's what I liked working on in college. That was what was exciting. It was now happening kind of stuff. And Hewlett Packard was big mainframe stuff, just working on protocols for the web and interconnection. And it was just all the passion that I had found for computing disappeared and it sucked. And I was, uh, I was really frustrated because I was excited when I finally found something I could really be passionate about besides poker, because I knew poker wasn't like a career I wanted to have. And so, but I wanted something I was excited about. And I found computers. I was really excited about that. When I got to Hewlett Packard, it was like the software pasture. You know, Hewlett Packard was like where programmers go to die, you know, and it's, and I just thought, holy crap, this is horrible. What happened? And uh, one day, but I used to act out a lot because uh, if I'm not focused on my work, I'm focused on creating excitement and interest, <laughs> not much to my manager's chagrin. And uh, one of the guys I was working with said, you know, it's funny because all this stuff you do, this wacky stuff you do, he says, where she works, they do that all the time. I said, where's that? He goes, Atari. That was the first time I ever heard of Atari as a place to work. I had heard of Atari as a game company. I never thought of them as a place to work. So wait, and, if we can back up a little bit, sorry. What is, this sure. wacky, what is this wacky, wacky stuff that you're doing? Well, I used, we had bullpens, right? We didn't even have cubicles. We had bullpens where you'd have six to eight desks in an area. One of the standard issues at Hewlett Packard was these headphones. They weren't really headphones. They were just ear protectors because it was a noisy environment. And every, that was what you got. You got this. And that was your way of like closing your door in your office. You could just put the, uh, the earphones on and avoid distraction because Hewlett Packard at that time had a philosophy that they wouldn't buy any building that they couldn't turn around and sell to a supermarket chain if things didn't work out at Hewlett Packard. And so you would buy these buildings that just had these vast floor spaces and they break it up into bullpens and then just a bunch of desks. And so it was uh, very collegial and it was, it was kind of nice in that regard, but it was very noisy and it was kind of a pain, but it was very stark. And so I used to find ways to decorate uh, my cube. And so one thing they had was they had listing markers, right? There used to be that you'd go through a big fan fold listing when you're programming and that, and you get a dump, what's called a dump, which would be, you'd get a printout, like a 60, 70 page printout of all the memory. <laughs> That's what you would debug. You would debug your program by going over the memory printout of the actual code 
and look through there to see, you know, where's where's my problem? How am I going to fix this? And so there were listing markers and they were brightly colored. They were just these little clips. And it was all about the listing markers. So I used to take those and I would make chains out of the listing markers and I would string them up and down and I would do things to decorate my office and my my headset and all this other stuff so that you'd come into this area and you'd see all these desks and then you'd see Howard's desk and it was like loud. You know, it was like it just didn't look like anybody else's desk. And I got very involved in playing racquetball with other people, playing poker with other people, doing the football pool with other people. I did virtually everything you can do as a coworker other than work. <laughs> work was like so boring to me. And so I would just spend some time just sort of writing code on paper. And then I would just, you know, start goofing around and telling jokes or, you know, getting people involved. We played some games. We had some we had some games on the terminals. There's some very early version, uh, simple games and we play those played a lot of Yahtzee. That's for sure. And uh, and but I would just do goofy stuff. I would say weird things. I would act out in meetings. I'm always known for that. I mean, in the book, there's some really funny examples of uh, times in meetings where I would pop off with things or make weird jokes and be a smart ass generally. <laughs> just that's what I did in my 20s. And uh, and he said, you know, Atari's the place. So I went to Atari and I, I, I talked my way into an interview there because I wasn't invited to, but I just sort of pushed my way in and went through a battery of interviews and then they rejected me. And so I didn't accept the rejections. I pushed back on them. I just said, hey, what's the problem? What do you need? You know, what, let's let's work this out because I think this would be a great job match. And so, and then I said, well, I, and finally I just nailed the guy down. I said, look, what is the issue here? I know exactly what you do. I mean, I wasn't all, I also wasn't a video game player. I was a game player. I love games. But I really had never played much video games. I never used to go to arcades. It just wasn't a thing that called to me. But I loved real-time control programming, which is exactly what they do in video games. And I said, well, I do this kind of work. I have background in this. Not many people do. And uh, you know, I think this would be a great place to work. And he told me, well, what they were worried about was that I might be too straight for the environment. They said, you know, you might be a little too conventional for us. And I just told him, you really, that's that's not true. <laughs> that, is, that is just not the case. And do give me a chance. Give me a chance to be here and show you what I got. And they did. And I for a, a substantial cut in pay and, and probationary period, I came to Atari. They let me in. And it 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 went on to be a very funny joke at Atari, the idea that they thought I was too straight to be at Atari because I turned out to be one of the quintessential wackos at Atari. I mean, I was an iconic VCS programmer, but they didn't see it at first. And I understood why, you know, the silly thing was me, when I went to interview, I put on a more professional demeanor because that's what I thought that's what you do in an interview. You know, you don't act out in an interview, you know, you just try and be courteous and be nice. And I dress more nicely and stuff. And, and I realized, wow, I wasn't really being who I was and they misread me. 
And I almost blew the job by trying to be professional at the interview, but fortunately worked out. So Howard, uh, as I said, I'm excited to have this opportunity to speak with you and for everybody to, you know, uh, get to know you. Um, I received ET uh, Christmas 1982. Okay, you probably want the apology at this point. No. I love it. I think it's one of the best games. Um, Thank you. I'm not, I'm not just saying that because we spent so much time playing it. And I can remember that Christmas opening it up. It was wrapped up. My mom worked at Toys R Us and Ooh. she didn't make much money, but she knew I would want ET. And I could just remember unwrapping it and playing it so many times. Again, I should have went through the whole history and uh, bio for you in the beginning, but E.T., Raiders Lost Ark, Yars Revenge. I was playing Yars Revenge the other day with my son, uh, booting it up and playing it, still feeling the excitement. So you probably heard this from many people, but I say it sincerely. Um, I asked ChatGPT today, what led to Atari's downfall? And I'm sorry to say that among the six reasons of Atari's downfall, it blames your game. Well, that's one of the problems with uh, AI these days, right? Is it's right. not fully accurate. But uh, fortunately, in this book, I do give you the full, complete, uh, and I think actual uh, accurate explanation of why uh, the video game crash occurred, and it wasn't about ET. I don't think had anything to do with actually crashing the video game market, but it was a symptom. The way that project went was totally symptomatic of the kind of thinking and the kind of management that did lead to the crash. So I think ET wasn't causative in the crash. I think ET was a symptom of the way the industry was working, which inevitably was leading to the crash. But and I'm not sensitive about E.T., believe me. I see E.T. as a problematic game, and I do not see it as the worst game of all time by any means. But it's okay, because I prefer when people call it that. So you were given, what, six weeks to complete the game? or? Oh, I wish. No, I had five weeks. Five weeks, okay. So my question is, did you see any footage of the movie? I saw the movie. While making, you saw the movie, right? Okay. Oh, yeah, I had seen the movie before I started doing the game. And what did you program ET on what terminal or system? Uh, when I was at the time I was doing ET, we were at a point where we were typing code in on a terminal to a VAX system, a VAX network system. It wasn't really a network system, it was just a system that had a lot of terminals hanging off of it. So you would type your code in and assemble it on a VAX system. And then you would download it to uh, the emulator box. You would download the code image to an emulator box, and then you would run it on the emulator box. And on that box, you had basically a 6502 emulator. Uh, you had a TIA, the television interface adapter. That was the chip that was the essence of the Atari system, that with the thing that actually drove the screen. And we had an HP logic analyzer. So 
that was the debug tool. That was the debug tool that we had. We had a, a logic analyzer, so you could poke uh, memory locations, you could peek at memory locations, and you could patch code, which means you could go to some part of the code, type in a jump instruction to another area of unoccupied memory, hand assemble and type in the assembled version of the code you would like to test to put in, and then end that with a jump instruction back to the next sequence you wanted to go through. That was debugging on the VCS system. And I loved it. It was it was it was ugly. It was gross, uh, but it was very nitty gritty, dirty. And uh, most of the people who were there really liked working at that level of the machine. So that's what the development environment was like. Right. How many people uh, did you have to share the VAX with? Uh, that VAX system serviced most of the VCS department, which I would say was probably as many as 14 or 15 programmers, uh, about six or seven artists and uh, managers, about three or four managers. How did you handle the pressure of creating games within tight deadlines during your time at Atari? I handled the pressure by doing the games and uh, some drugs. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, we partied a lot and we worked a lot. We also did it by uh, essentially giving up on our lives outside of Atari. People who were really committed to doing the, the best games were at Atari a lot. I mean, like all the time. And when we weren't at Atari, we were out getting a meal together, talking about the games that we were doing, <laughs> we weren't working on them. It was a combination of spending a tremendous amount of time. Uh, there was some partying to do what I would call an efficient release of tension. And uh, it was just total commitment. It was because it was, this was super compelling and exciting, right? What we were doing, we were we were pioneering a new media. Literally is what we were doing. This was the birth of interactive entertainment on a large scale. And for someone like me, it was a chance to be the entertainer I always wanted to do. This was a shot at uh, being able to, to perform in a broadcast medium and put something out to potentially millions of people. That opportunity was amazingly exciting and compelling to me. It was just irresistible. So I had a tremendous amount of energy to put into this because I had a need to be there and to be involved in this because it was an amazing opportunity to get validated as an entertainer, as someone who could really do something. And this was, for where I was, it was a lot easier than trying to break into movies. You know? or like having to be able to act or dance or sing or write you know a lot of the kinds of things that you would try to do to really entertain those are hard things to do and i didn't have a lot of training for that but to be able to bust in this way and be able to reach an audience a huge audience through this 
Uh, all you had to do was make something that was sufficiently compelling that it drew the audience. And that was an irresistible challenge. But And there were a number of us who just put literally all of our energy into it. So there were a lot of divorces that happened among the people at Atari. There were uh, rifts in relationships. There were people who literally got carted away. People went insane. As the as it as as the as, as the time moved forward at Atari, initially it was just, hey, work on a game. We'll see when it's cool, and if you get there, great. And if not, well, you know, they get rid of you. <laughs> You'd have like five, six months or more to to show if you could do something. As time went on, you had to really be making progress and doing something, and there was a lot riding on it. It wasn't just, hey, we'll see when you come up with something, and if it's good, we'll release it. There were schedules. There were things, and ET was like the ridiculous, absurd version of it. But most of the games were licensed properties that had windows that they demanded, you know, you get something out in time for it. Nobody else got like a five-week schedule. But people, people had to make deadlines, and that kind of pressure was there because there were literally millions and sometimes tens of millions of dollars riding on you hitting a delivery date. And there were people who couldn't handle it. And there were people who went catatonic in their office. There were people who literally wound up in institutions. I've never seen so many nervous breakdowns as, uh, as I saw working at Atari. I've never been in another work environment where that happened with the frequency and regularity that it did at Atari. It was, uh, it was a very intense place to be. So it was a fun place if you like high-intensity stuff and you know how to deal with that. But... It was a pretty intense place to work. Now, combine that with the idea that it was a very, uh, your, your standing at Atari was always tenuous, right? You'd come in one day and be a real hero, having released a game and everything looks good. And then there'd be days where we weren't sure if we were going to have jobs the next day. There'd be times, they, well, maybe they're thinking of dumping BCS and going in another direction. And there'd be, you know, nowadays, in the gaming industry, it is not unusual for people to work on a big game, and then at the end of the game, they just disband the team and lay everybody off, and that's it. And then people form again for another game at another studio sometimes. But uh, it was weird coming into work and knowing either there were political fights, infighting going on that could result in people getting bounced, or just different management direction or disappointment and stuff. It was, so the tension of the fact that your job was frequently in play, right? it wasn't always clear you'd have the job, and but you're really killing yourself trying to deliver for the job. Uh, not everybody could handle it. And the people who handled it barely handled it. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty rough. I was divorced twice while I was working at Atari. I was married when I started working at Atari. That marriage fell apart. I married. I got married again while I, in the four years I was at Atari. Uh, had I got divorced? I got married again and got divorced again. But I'm a very efficient guy, right? That's the thing is I try to do things quickly. <laughs> Did you know that ET would be? you know, such a lightning rod game. I mean, I don't want to use the word controversial. 
Um, you know, if I say, uh, you know, award winning, I don't know uh, how many people would agree with that, but I think it's an awesome game. But did you know that it would become, I mean, I would imagine that there was a lot of pressure for you to complete something, you know, that was tied to a motion picture. Right. Well, this was my second motion picture. This was the second game I did with Spielberg, right? I did Raiders of the Lost Ark before this. Of course, I had 10 months to do Raiders. Uh, when E.T. came up, it was just, uh, it was a mess of a situation. And uh, the CEO of the company called me personally to ask me, could I deliver this game? You know, he called me on July 27th, said, we have to have this game for September 1st. Can you do it? And I just told him, absolutely, I can do it as long as we reach the right agreement. That's what I told him. And so there's, I did not know that it was going to have the controversy that it did. It is a controversial game in a lot of ways. It's a game, it became a lightning rod for haters, really. Right. Because what's an interesting phenomenon about the ET game is like, there are lots of people who like the game. There are lots of people who don't like the game. And I'm okay with that. I'm totally cool with that. Because uh, when people, if play, people play a game and then they tell you if they like it or not, I never argue with someone. That, that's their opinion. And I always respect that. What's interesting, though, is the number of people who want to tell me, you know, wow, you made the worst game of all time. How does that feel? That's a, it's a horrible, horrible game. And, you know, that's fine. So, But what I always say when someone tells me that is I just say, oh, have you played it? And you would be amazed how frequently the answer is no. And so I would just say, well, it's interesting that you think this is a horrible game, but you've never played it. And that usually ends that conversation. But, you know, so I had no idea what it was going. I mean, this was a game I was doing. It was a huge mountain to climb at a time where I really wanted and needed a challenge. This was a huge, wonderful challenge for me. And it was also a thing that no one else would touch. No one would touch this game. So when they, because they took too much time negotiating the rights to the game, because management had no idea of what making a product meant or what it took or what that was. I mean, think about this. If you were negotiating this for months and they could have checked with engineering at the beginning and said, hey, how long does it take to make a game? They said five or six months. Wow. Well, could you possibly do one in like three months? You know, if we close this negotiation real quickly? Well, maybe. It'd be nice to know that in advance, but they didn't even call it to ask. They never said anything about it. So when they finished negotiations, there was only a five week window left. That's why there was five weeks because they only their negotiations only left a five week window, but they had never communicated with their development people while they were negotiating the rights for this because it never occurred to them that that might even have could possibly impact the negotiations that's the level of detachment that management had there and it's not that these were stupid people or uninformed people these were quality professionals tried and true but this was a new industry right this was technotainment which was brand new and they brought in classical managers who had no idea how to deal with technology, really didn't understand entertainment. And this was an entertainment technology company and nobody really knew what to do with it. Nolan kind of knew what to do with it. He got it launched and got it rolling, 
But when they checked in, they kind of pushed him out and they replaced him with people who had no concept of how to deal with this. And that's the thing. It seems like a bunch of dunces, you know, goofing around. But what you had was a lot of very smart, skilled people with good experience who were dealing with something they didn't understand. But it was hard for them to own the idea they didn't understand it because these people were being, paying, being paid a lot of money to, quote, understand what they were doing and to know what they were doing. And when you do that, when you give somebody a lot of money, they, they, they're they usually not inclined to say, by the way, I have no idea what's going on here. So, you know, they just take the money and say thank you and do what they think is best. And sometimes it works out. But at Atari, they were just flying blind. And it was very frustrating for a lot of we were frustrating to them. They were frustrating to us. And uh, and then you get a fiasco like this. But to answer your question, I did not see what was coming down the road with the ET project when I took on the project. I just wanted to do I wanted to see if I could do a game this fast. And when it was done, you also have to remember, I finished this game September 1st. Right. It was cleared and sent to manufacturing on September 1st. But and then all I had was positive feedback for the rest of the year and into the beginning of the next year. It was topping the sales charts. Everything was doing really well. The feed, there was no internet. There wasn't any mass instant feedback going on. And there wasn't any big drop. Right. So by the time we start getting feedback in the beginning of the next year about there's a problem with the game. I'm months into my next development already. I mean, I'm so far away from this and into other stuff. I'm not even really thinking about it. So I never project. And there was no game I did that I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be talking about this 30 years later. You know, I, I didn't even want to talk about it two months later. <laughs> so so the, my burning question is, Howard, how did you become the chosen one to work with Steven Spielberg? Well, that's a good question. So. The reason I became the chosen one to work with Steven Spielberg was because Steven Spielberg chose me. I was literally the chosen one. And the way that happened was when it came time to do Raiders, there were a number of engineers who were available. And the deal was, this was the first movie license to be done. So Steven Spielberg had to approve the program. He had to meet and approve the program, which doesn't mean he comes to Sunnyvale and talks to programs. It means we go to LA to talk to him. So I was the first one to go down there and I went and had an amazing, that's like a whole big story in the book is like yeah. that day that I went to meet Spielberg because at first I show up just on time and they moved the meeting six hours, but that means I got to spend six hours cruising around Warner Brothers Studios unescorted, which for me was like a dream come true. Wow. And then at the end of all that, I get to talk with Steven Spielberg. So I had brought a copy of Yars Revenge. And he had a VCS there, so we played some Yars, and he he liked that. And we talked about games, and we talked about ideas about Raiders and stuff. And but I think the thing that really cinched it was at one point, I because I had seen Close Encounters, and he was I didn't know, but he was working on ET at this time. And so uh, I told him how much I like Close Encounters, and he said, "Well, he's working on another Alien movie now." And I told him, I told him I have this theory about how he himself is actually an alien. <laughs> and I said, do you want to hear it? And he goes, yeah. And I laid out this whole theory about how, you know, the aliens are going to send this advanced team to culturalize the planet. And he's like the production arm. 
and his marketing people are making sure his movies that show aliens in a positive light are seen all over the earth everywhere in preparation and so i said i just want to say you know nice job you're doing a great job you know i really i'm really uh, i'm really digging it and so and uh i think that's what really got me the uh the job because the next day i went back to uh back to sunnyvale to atari and the word came back you know spielberg just says i'm going with howard you know that's fine howard will do the game so i did raiders and he was very happy with what i did with raiders so when it came time to do et spielberg said i would like howard to do et he didn't have to say that though because nobody was going to go near this game with five weeks to do the game i didn't even realize it but before he called, Ray Kazar called me to ask me if I could do ET in five weeks. Before he called me, he called my boss's boss, the head of VCS development. And he said, hey, we need ET for September 1st. And the head of VCS development just told him, no, we can't do it. We can't do a game in five weeks. You just can't do it. Can't happen. So forget it. And after that, Kazar still called me. And if I would have known that my boss's boss had already told him no, I don't know what I would have done in that. I don't know if I would have been the same in that phone call. So I'm kind of glad I didn't know. But then I told him I could do it. And then, and there were, there, we had gotten to a point of a royalty program, right? So doing a big license meant, could be substantial money, right? So then we had a department meeting on the third day of this project. Uh, there was an apartment meeting and I had just gotten back from presenting the design to Spielberg and that was approved. And so it was announced at this department, because this was all hush hush. And then at this department meeting, it was announced that I was going to be doing a, a video game for the ET game, right? And every, and this was a VCS department meeting. Everybody's groaning. Like, oh God, Howard just did Raiders. He gets to do all the big games. Oh God, you know, and it was like some browsing. And so I stood up in the meeting and I said, Hey, I said, this game is due for September 1st. This is July 30th. Okay. So I said, this game is due for September 1st. I said, anybody who wants it, just raise your hand. You can have it crickets it was not a sound no i never ever from that moment on ever heard anybody complain about me having done the et game and i never in all these years have ever heard anyone people have come up to me and criticized the et game i have never heard anyone say i wish i would have done that game i could have done that game i should have been the one to do that game no one has ever said that to me <laughs> It was just so clear in that moment. It's like, you know, it, first people were thinking, oh God, Howard gets all the big titles and stuff. But after, when I told them what the real deal was, they stopped saying, oh, Howard gets the titles. What they started saying was, holy crap, Howard's insane. <laughs> Howard's out of his mind. You know, he thinks he's gonna do this game. Howard, as you're describing this, I can imagine a movie about you where you're standing on top of the table at Atari during the meeting in dramatic form um and and saying does anybody want to take this that's cool it does sound like a scene i've actually i'm actually talking to some hollywood producers who are thinking of making a movie of once upon atari so okay. you're not far off there you okay. have you have the hollywood vision 
Well, thank you. Um, I have to, I have a question. My friend from NASA, Mr. X, he wishes to remain anonymous. He said, Nico, please ask Howard this question. What about the glitch? He said. And I said, what glitch? He said, why does ET get stuck in the pit? So that is a question from Mr. X. You so never get stuck in a pit. I mean, you're never stuck in a pit in a game. You can always get out of the pit unless you run out of energy. I mean, ET doesn't have like lives and stuff like that. What you have is an energy counter. That's the way I work the game is that you have a certain allocation of energy to win the level with. And if you don't complete the level within that allocation of energy, well, you first you lay down and you're stuck and then Elliot flies in to come in and restore you and gives you some bonus energy to try and finish the level that way. But that's the way you would lose. But that can happen anywhere in the game. That doesn't have to happen in a pit. Uh, I think what he means is, uh, why is it difficult to get out of the pits cleanly? Because some people have a lot of trouble when they're exiting the pit, avoiding falling back in. And there is some technique to avoiding that. There were things I left in the game that were basically gameplay. You know, the way I did ET in five weeks was I made it essentially a treasure hunt game. And a treasure hunt game, I think, can be executed fairly quickly, but you need some gameplay. You need something to do. So I made there some I made some tight spaces you have to navigate through without touching anything or else the collision detect goes off and you get pulled into a, into a, one of the pits. Or uh, when you're navigating out of the pits, that's also gameplay. These are skills that you're supposed to learn and develop as you go to add challenge to the game. But one of the big problems with the ET game was that people, you know, the VCS had very primitive graphics. I mean, very primitive graphics. So usually you're relating to your avatar as this blob of pixels, and you know that if pixels touch other pixels, then stuff happens. So that makes sense. The problem with the ET thing was that the graphics were so good that people started to believe in the characters. So when a part of you that wasn't your feet touched a well and tripped the uh, collision detection, which was part of the plan of the game and puts you into the well, people would go, well, that doesn't make sense. You, you should only touch it with your feet and you go in. And it's like, no, it's a VCS graphic when they touch, you know, you're supposed to avoid the collision, but it didn't really go that way. So people's expectations, which you can never really control, uh, got to a place where they thought it should be different than what it was. And I didn't have enough time to tune or really test or really run this through to see what to do with it. So that got to be a big controversy because it wasn't super easy just to pop out of a well. I was hoping that would be gameplay. It turned out to be irritating you know, to players and just bothered them. And that was a bad thing. Also, there were times where it would flip screens and then you'd collide again and then you'd fall back in the pits. And people, I think people thought it was a glitch. I think that's what he's talking about, is the idea that you think you're out, you think you're okay, then boom, you're back in. And it seems like it's not working. Uh, what was one of the most significant technological challenges you faced while developing games at Atari? Well, I mean, everything 
in the VCS was an amazing technological challenge. I'll tell you what's a challenge. Uh, I don't know how sophisticated your audience is in programming and stuff, but you know, there's two kinds of memory we dealt with. There's ROM and RAM. The, the, the cart that you would stick into your machine and play was a computer chip that was ROM. ROM is read-only memory, which means you can't use that memory. You can only pull stuff out from it. And that's where all your graphics and your code, your game code and stuff goes. And the computer in the, in the base unit uses that code to run the game and operate it. But in a game, there's a lot of things that you need to keep track of, that you need to be able to write in. And that's RAM, random access memory. Okay, so uh, to write any program, most people know that you need places to put variables. You know, in a video game, you need a place to hold players' scores. You need to hold their positions. You need to hold game state and information. If things are decaying or going around, you need to be able to keep track of them. Uh, like in Yard's Revenge, you had a shield that was a whole bunch of, of uh, little cells, and you had to know each cell where it was and whether it's on or off. All that is memory. So we only had 4K. And with ET, I was able to get up to 8K of ROM. So the entire game had to fit in 8K of ROM. But RAM, the actual memory you can use for state and gameplay and for a stack, right? So you also have to put your stack in this same area of memory, which means it potentially can overwrite your data. We had 128 bytes, and that's it. 128 bytes of RAM. Imagine, uh, you know, like sticky notes? You got sticky notes? Imagine you have 128 sticky notes, and each one of them, you can only write eight ones or zeros on them. And that's it. That's all the memory you can control. That was one of the greatest challenges technologically on uh, the BCS, is trying to get meaningful stuff done, retain game state and information in that limited memory. The other one was the fact that you only had 76 memory cycles for a line. You know, most people, when you think about graphics programming, you think about the idea of you have a screen image, you have a bitmap of the screen. And what you do is you draw that, you put all the stuff in it, you know, whatever you want, and then you tell the display, here's your next screen. And then you go work on another screen. And while you're working on the other screen, that other screen is up and it's there and that's fine. You know, it'll, it'll just stay like it is until you get to the next one. The VCS wasn't like that. The VCS didn't have what you call a memory, a, a screen buffer. It didn't have a bitmap. So when you're programming the VCS, you are actually updating registers that are changing what's going on in the electron beam as it's scanning across the screen. Now you don't even have like cathode ray tubes right, for displays. But back then if the VCS, TVs were phosphor plates and there was an electron gun that scanned across them and zapped little electron, little rays of electrons on the phosphor to activate the phosphor to create images. And you had to control dot for dot all across the screen, line after line, for 192 lines down vertically. And each one of those lines had about 160 individual 
pixels, basically, that you could work with. But you couldn't work with all of them. The pixels you could control were only like you had two sets of eight pixels. You had then you had three other versions of one pixel. And then you had this background play field, which was four bit chunks, four pixel chunks across the screen. You could set those registers. And that's all you had. I mean, that was all you had, and you were literally updating it a line at a time. So usually when you're writing a computer program, you just say, okay, well, how much time do I have? I know I'll just be doing all my game logic and graphics calculations, and I, I and that's what I do. When you're programming the VCS, 75% of all your computing time is spent actually creating the screen and managing the screen as you go. Because with the bitmap system, right, if your computer hangs, you still have a nice image that's on the screen and it just freezes. It just, but you see the whole image. On a VCS, if the computer hangs, you suddenly will just see streaks coming down the screen because the same registers have the same crap in them. And it just shows that all the way down the screen time and time again. And you don't see a screen, you don't see an image. So, the idea that most of your time is spent literally tracking where the electron beam is as it's scanning across the, the, the screen. So you know whether you can go ahead and try and update a register to try and get another effect now, or is it going to screw it up? Is it going to mess up the last graphic because it hasn't displayed yet? That's the kind of thinking that goes on in a VCS program. And then that other 25% of your time, that's 100% of your game logic is all in there. So outside of those two things, there wasn't really much technical challenge at all. Okay. Were there any rumors that Atari was dumping or getting rid of product? Was, or was this something that you learned decades later? Oh, there was no awareness of that. Uh, when, where we were in development, there was no, you know, we were just, you know, we were mushrooms, right? They kept us in the dark and fed us bullshit. You know, it's like, that's, we, our, our job was to pop games out. Nothing went in, right? There was no information flow in. We didn't hear much of anything. We weren't really particularly tied into rumor mills. I thought I was, I tried to connect with other parts of the company, but mm. Atari was a very chaotic environment. It was a very uh, interesting and odd place to be. And it was uh, trying to keep track of all the, uh, what might be happening, what is happening and what, what we need to happen. That kept you pretty busy. Uh, I'm curious, Howard, uh, was that New Mexico site completely excavated? Uh, is it possible that there are some remaining cartridges? I'm oh, the vast majority of them are. The vast majority of them are still there. They only extracted a very small part. They were just happy to find one zone where they actually were getting some stuff. And they pulled a bunch of stuff out of that particular area. But they probably were able to access maybe a two by two or three by three meter area. The area where all the stuff was dumped, probably like 20 by 50 meters at least. It's a much larger area and there's a lot more stuff. They only, they got a very small percentage of it. And even so they still found a wide variety of, uh, of material and carts. So I had this really wacky idea 
yesterday about finding information on this and maybe um, heading up a caravan of, uh, you know, some video game zombies and heading out there um, to get some cartridges, seriously. Well, you can try it, but I hope you're going to bring like some very heavy machinery with you because they kind of plugged that up once they did the dig. And the city of Alamogordo, there was a long protracted uh, time of just trying to get permission to dig it up. They were afraid that like poison gases and things like this were going to be released when they dug into everything because there's a lot of heavy metals and there's a lot of toxic uh, material that goes into making computer chips. And when you bury them under high pressure for a long time, you know, a lot of people were very afraid of that there might be some kind of a toxic cloud release when they broke through. These were cemented over also, right? Where, where they dump this stuff, there's about 20 or 25 feet of stuff on top. And there's a layer of cement right on top of the Atari stuff. And then there's another 25 feet of stuff that's built up over time. They had to dig through all of that stuff wow. to get to this. So you're welcome to go. You and your zombies can go, you know, have a good time. You better bring some really good shovels, though. I don't know why I said that, but I'm inspired by your moxie. So I'm going to go with it. Um, uh, well, I love to be inspirational. So thank you. You are, you are very insp inspirational. Um, I, I know you're promoting your book and I encourage everybody to get it. I'm going to get it. Are there any untold stories or behind the scene anecdotes from your time in the video game industry that aren't included in the book that you'd like to share with us? Something that. There aren't a lot. The main stories that are not included in there would be uh, my personal relationship stories, which I did not delve into very much in uh, in the book. But the Atari shenanigans and stuff like that, the vast majority of them are there in the book. That's That was the compilation of the book. I'd also like to say that this book is, it's a paperback. It is also an ebook, and I have recently published the uh, audiobook, and I read the audiobook. So if you've enjoyed this interview at all, if you think this is fun, or if you like the way I'm telling stories, you will love the audiobook. Because people who have read the book and listened to the audiobook uh, say that the audiobook is actually much more compelling because you get all the energy and the uh, the emotion that I can't seem to relate without. <laughs> so I'm very involved in that. You also get some stories about how I became a psychotherapist, which I currently am now. I am now a licensed psychotherapist in California. I've been that for uh, a decade now. And the idea of the transition from Atari uh, to becoming a psychotherapist is kind of an interesting transition that uh, some people don't get, but I, I think I can explain it fairly simply. Uh, the funny thing is that a lot of people don't think that computer programmers would make good therapists. I mean, I, I hear that a lot. And when people say that, I think what they're really saying is, you know, Nerds don't have a lot of people skills. <laughs> so how, how are you going to be a therapist that way? And uh, I never looked at it that way. The way I look at it is that therapists and engineers were all, I mean, therapists and programmers were all systems analysts, right? So the only thing is that I've just moved on to more sophisticated hardware in the human brain. 
right? I look at people and I see OSs. Everybody has their own version of an OS. And if I can work out the API, I can help someone adjust their system and get it back on track. And that's one of the ways that I kind of view doing therapy, especially a lot of the people I do therapy with are engineers and game makers and people like that. I'm the Silicon Valley therapist. What advice do you have for young programmers out there who want to make games? Ah, oh, I'd say I hope you've exhausted all your other alternatives. <laughs> the first thing I'd say. The second thing I would say is be prepared to pay your dues. Uh, it takes a while to really establish yourself in it. Uh, also, I would say be open-minded. One of the one of the really cool things about game programming, uh, there's for a long time there's been like a stigma or a scorn uh, about game programmers. In that, a lot of people who have never been involved with games, uh, people look down on game programmers. They think they're not serious or just goof offs or things like that. They don't. They see themselves as as uh, really serious programmers, and game programmers are kind of goofing around. Uh, in my experience, because I've worked both in and out of games quite a bit as a programmer, uh, the truth is to be a game programmer, you generally have to have a tremendous amount more breadth than most programmers do. You have to go fairly deep in a lot of different disciplines, uh, whereas most people who are professional programmers are fairly narrow. They do a kind of programming, a specific area, and that's what they do. And it's kind of funny to see people who are more limited kind of looking down on the people who have a much more comprehensive uh, vernacular in programming and languages. And so I always found that interesting. So be prepared for some scorn if you deal with people outside the games industry and be prepared for a lot of uh, alpha gaming, you know, the alpha geek gaming, because uh, you will see that when you're programming in the games industry as well, because people who make games tend to be competitive. So those would be the key points I would give to someone who's going into it is you better really want to do it because it will take a lot out of you. Doing games demands a lot because games are horribly managed frequently. So they end up just brutalizing the people who work for them. And uh, so you've really got to have stamina. You've got to have a tremendous amount of passion. It needs to be really, really important to you to be a part of something like that. And if that's where you're at and that's what you really want to do, go for it. So, Howard, you were, you were an early pioneer of the industry. You had experience with Atari that didn't have much competition early on, um, aside from Commodore, um, which is interesting. That's, you know, you're speaking at um, here at BPUG, um, and we usually talk about Commodore topics, but... Um, I'm curious about now with programmers, how do you know, we don't have just one silo or two silos. What do you, how do you decide to program in, you know, Python or assembly? Where do you go from here? Where does a you go, programmer go? You go become a therapist. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, one of the great things about becoming one of the reasons I left programming is because programming is a pain in the ass because every two or three years you've got to learn everything over again because there's a new environment, there's a new tech, 
there's new languages. You know, the great thing about people is although individual people are certainly capable of change, people as a, as a species don't really change that much. The toys change, the games change, but what people do, how they operate doesn't change. I got tired of having to relearn everything every few years. And, you know, with people, you know, people are people and I love them. So it's uh, my solution to that is get out of programming. You know, if you, if you don't want to have too much trouble choosing what to do, because as a programmer, it behooves you to know as many languages and be in as many silos as possible. You know, okay. you want to be able to have wheat one day and quinoa the next. That's a great answer. Um, you know, in recent years, retrograde has seen a resurgence in popularity. How do you feel about this renewed resurgence about the uh, the Atari flashback and these kind of things that look like Ataris or not? And they look like Atari, but they're really, you know, um, Raspberry Pi inside or whatever. I love it. You know, why not? I mean, games have come full circle in a lot of ways. Okay, there, there's two aspects of this. One is the industry has kind of come full circle in that originally we had simple one screen games and then it got bigger and bigger and console games and PC games just got to be huge monolithic developments and they're really impressive. I mean, games, I had 4K to make Yars Revenge, okay? There are games now that easily take 40 gig, right? So these games are 40 million times bigger than the game that I made, than one of the games that I made, okay? Are, I mean, 10 million times bigger, right? Yeah, I gotta check my math now, holy crap. So it's like, you know, are they 10 million times better? They're a lot better. I mean, games are a lot better, but, the idea of, you know, it's narrow casting, right? You don't generally do a huge game now that's like brand new experimental running off in a different direction. A lot of the innovation as, and that's what an industry maturing does, right? You get to the idea of what are the successful products, you elaborate those, people aren't trying to make the breakthrough revolution new concept. They wanna make money, they wanna get return on their investment because the investment gets so huge okay so however the advent of handheld gaming of you know phone gaming of handheld stuff is brought back the idea of simple games that people can just waste some time on you know instead of having to spend weeks and weeks on that's appealing again and so there's still the big game but it looped back in a way that now there's also that simple the 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 low uh resource clever innovation focused gaming is back it's there now so there's still this place for the big ongoing monster development but there's also the place for wacky new ideas to be bred and developed that's to me was where the action was so that's one part of it the other thing is there's now there's a history right when i was doing video games you know worst game of all time i never heard the phrase worst game of all time when i was at atari because when i was at atari there wasn't an all time right? I mean, you have to have an all time before you can have a worst of all time it wasn't into into the 90s that they started talking about all time by then there were generations of machines and there was you know a 10 to 15 maybe 20 year history 
of gaming. And now you're talking about an all time, right? So the idea that there is a history, now there is a span, a life and generations of games. And whenever that happens, there's the search for origins, right? Whenever there's a history of something, there's the search for origins. And I'm very proud to be able to be someone who was there, who's semi-literate and who can communicate and can really pass on some of the value of what was going on early on. Because like I said, you know, technology changes, but people don't. And the kinds of difficulties, the kinds of tragedies, the kinds of joys and the kinds of intrigue that we saw at Atari, you see in technology companies today. It's still there. And that's one of the things. A lot of the people, I did a deep dive into interdepartmental conflict. Where does that come from? What is that about? That's in this book also. And what a lot of people have told me is that it's interesting that you, you talk about this stuff from Atari, they still see it in their companies today. It's still there. It's just I made it in a kind of a fun package. But these games, these things keep going on. They keep happening. And so to be able to be someone who can stand up and represent for the origins and where things came from and be able to inform later generations of what, you know, where this came from and what it meant, uh, I'm very honored to be able to do that. Howard, I think that you, my original idea was that um, Cyberpunk 2077 is going to eclipse your game. And James Alexander just texted, what if people think your, your game was the worst of all time, um, what about <laughs> Cyberpunk 2077 and all the hate they've been getting in all the magazines, right? Um, and I didn't want to make the interview about this, but, you know, I, I thank you for clarifying that. Uh, my question is, I plugged in Yars Revenge the other day for my four-year-old son, and we played it, and he's like, Daddy, what is that? Is that a bee? Is that a, you know, a fly? Um, and it's amazing that a, a four-year-old boy in, today can look at this technology and comprehend what it means. Um, did you have any contact with the artists of the, you know, this cover art? and what we had to base our purchasing on back in the day? The cover art or the graphics in the game? Well, the cover art, yeah. Did you have no, I didn't have any contact with the cover art people. They just, they made the cover art and it was awesome. Uh, I made the backstory, I wrote the backstory. Another thing that Yara's Revenge did was the first game that had a backstory. I wrote the original backstory for a video game. I just thought it was a great way to bring more to uh, the game to enhance the fantasy experience. And so I wrote a backstory for the game and Atari liked that. And then they went and made a comic book out of it. And that, because of that backstory, it gave them the concept for the art, but I didn't have any communication. I just, I just gave them the story, but a guy named Hiro Kimura, I think is the guy who did that box art. He did a, an amazing job. I've always been very proud to be associated with that, with that work. What, where did you get the idea for Yars Revenge? I made it up. But that's that is a whole story in the book. The whole story. I mean, I'm kind of turning into a pumpkin, so I'm going to have to take off pretty soon. But uh, the whole idea of how Yars Revenge, I, I designed the game, just the gameplay. I wanted to make a fun game, something that was interesting. And when I was done making the game, 
that's when I started to create the concept and the backstory and things like that, because I was afraid marketing was going to do it. And I thought they might do something really lame and I didn't want anything lame to go on with this. So I decided to make my own submission and I kind of zoomed marketing on it. I actually had my little marketing planned out market marketing. I mean, I can tell you that story. You want to hear that story? Yeah, please. Of how, so when it came time to name yards, it wasn't yards. I mean, my working title was time freeze because it was all about, I knew I wanted to have a huge payoff sequence because Yars Revenge is also the first game to have a full screen explosion and very elaborate payoff sequences and stuff. The showman part, you know, the showmanship of this, that, that was foremost in my mind when I was making a game. And so I knew I wanted to have big splashy pay payoff stuff and lots of glittery, you know, holy crap, what is that? I wanted a lot of that kind of reaction. So that's what I put on the screen. But I didn't have any name or concept or anything for it. When it came time, they told me they're going to be naming the game soon. And I said, holy crap, because I'd seen the way they named games before and it was pretty lame. So I just said, hey, can I make a submission? And the guy says, yeah, you know, better do it fast. So I said, OK, come back tomorrow. I'll have something for you. This was like, you know, late afternoon. So I stayed in my office all night. I spent the entire night uh, in the office. So um, by the way, uh, from Jonah Clausen, thank you. I really appreciate that. So uh, first I started thinking, okay, what am, I need a title. I want something. I don't know what it's going to be. And I, I thought, okay, well, revenge. Revenge is a great title word, right? Because who doesn't want revenge, right? So revenge always works. And then revenge, you know, so who's getting revenge? And this was exciting to me because I thought this is my chance to do something I've always wanted to do, which is uh, add a word to the English language. You know, everybody knows what, what Pac-Man is. I thought if this game really goes on to be popular, whatever I name this character, that's going to be a, a word that everybody knows. And this is my chance to add a word to the English language. I thought I didn't, I didn't think I'd ever get a chance to do it, but I thought this was great. So I thought, okay, I start making up stuff. I don't know if you've ever tried to make up a new word. Have you ever sat down to try to make up a new word? It's really hard because everything sounds stupid. It's just really hard to come up with something that doesn't sound ridiculous. So I scrapped the idea of just making something up and I decided to go algorithmically. And I decided that uh, the CEO, Ray Kazar, has a very interesting name because if you spell Ray backwards, it comes out Yar. And I thought that's kind of cool. It's got a Y in it. And Y is very sci-fi kind of stuff. So I thought, okay, so Yar, that's kind of cool. And then Kazar, if you spell that backwards, it's Razak. And that has a Z sound in it. So if you, as long as you're at the end of the alphabet, you're kind of in sci-fi territory, right? Y's, X's, Y's, and Z's. You know, that's always good for sci-fi, in my opinion. So I decided I'm going to make it the Yarian Revenge of Razak 4. And then that glittery thing in the center of the screen, I just made it up. That, I made up this whole story about how flies, house flies, got onto interstellar uh, spaceships and got irradiated and they turned into these special powers and they wiped out all the humans and then they went and occupied the solar system and then there's these monsters the cotile monsters and they come in and they eviscerate one of the planets and that's what you see that center zone that's the remains of the planet Razak 4 and so that's why we're getting revenge right we're trying to avenge the death of all our brethren and sistren who were on that planet so that's where the and I, so I just wrote like a 12 page story that elaborated all this stuff. Uh, and I finished it <clears throat> very, very early in the morning the next day, turned it over to the admins to type up. 
Uh, I went and laid down in my office and took a nap. And then the, uh, the product manager comes back and he goes, so have you got something? And I said, yes. And I handed him the name and the whole story. And so I gave it to him and I said, look, uh, I said, just get this in. He put, took it, he put it in and that was great. Then the next day he comes back and I said, so is it in? Is this a minute? He goes, yeah. I said, did they choose yet? He goes, no, not yet, but it, it's really close. I said, okay. I said, can I tell you a secret? And he goes, yeah. I said, but you, you, you can't tell anyone. I don't want this to impact the name, the naming of the game at all. He goes, okay, whatever. <laughs> so I said, okay, so Yar, you know, the name of the character. He goes, yeah. I said, spell that backwards. He goes, okay, well, Ray. And go, right. And Ray Zach, you know, where it happens, you know, what's that? He thinks about it, he goes, Kazar. He goes, oh, Ray Kazar, Ray Kazar. I go, oh my God, does Ray know about this? And I said, well, of course Ray knows about this. So I wouldn't do something like this without Ray's knowledge. I said, but that's why you can't tell anyone. You can't tell anyone because I don't want this to unduly influence the game. And I said, okay. So I swore him to secrecy two more times. And at this point, I know three things, right? First, I know the first thing he's going to do is run right back to marketing and tell everybody. <laughs> Okay, I know that. The second thing I know is that nobody in marketing has the stones to go and actually talk to Ray because Ray's like, you know, on Mount Olympus up there. So I wasn't really worried about that. And But I, I felt good about that too, in fact, because the third thing I know is that Ray knows nothing about this. I pulled this out of my ass and he doesn't know anything about it. And I really didn't want to have to deal with the blowback if it got to that point. And then the next day he comes in, he goes, guess what? He goes, we're going with yards. We're going with yards. I thought, oh, that's great. That's great. And that was like my marketing planned out market marketing. And I put the little zoom in on them. But uh, and that's and I wrote the story just to make it stronger, to make the submission stronger. And because I, you know, I like writing. So that's uh, that's one story. The kid there's there's a lot of great stories about Yars Revenge that are in the book. There's also all the testing. Yars Revenge was the most tested game in in history from Atari because there was someone who was trying to kill the game. It was, it was like a really solid game, but someone was trying to keep holding it back and picking it, and that was a whole fiasco. But eventually it went out and it became Atari's uh, biggest selling original game. So is that, is, that what we, is that what you call a saboteur? Well, you would call it a saboteur, but that wasn't the game saboteur that I did. No, but there was a saboteur in Atari trying to sabotage. Revenge, right? Yeah, but I wouldn't call him so much as a saboteur as a political operative. <laughs> this was mm -hmm. this was someone who was trying to maneuver to get more credit for things, and they were worried about someone else getting more credit for something. Mm -hmm. Getting credit for things was a very oh, there's a copy of Saboteur. Steve Ramirez is mm -hmm. showing us a cop. That's huge, Stephen. Nice. Thank you. I don't see too many of those. Thank you. That's he actually signed it back in 2014 for me. At a wow. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, you. yes. Appreciate it. The Texas Gaming Classic. Yeah. Yeah. That was cool. That did was you, a cool. Did you weekend. keep in touch with any guys from Activision? And how did you feel about these guys that were breaking off and starting their own companies? I wanted to do it too. But I didn't. I ended up staying at Atari long enough to before things really started to work there. I mean, what was happening was Atari was holding back. They didn't want to pay any money. And other companies were forming and they were crediting programmers. They were paying them royalties and doing all of that. 
And it got to the point where it was hard to stay at Atari. But at one point, Todd Fry, the guy who did Pac-Man and the Sword Quest series, Todd and I were going to leave to form another company. And Todd told them we were going to leave. And then they decided we better keep some programmers here. So then they turned around and made a substantial. That, that was the day everything changed at Atari. That's a whole nother chapter of the book, right? Is that when, uh, when Atari decided to finally turn around and pay programmers reasonable wages that were competitive with other companies in the industry, Atari had spawned all the other companies essentially, right? Atari could have kept Activision from forming and could have kept Imagic from forming and no one would have really known how much profit potential there was in the industry. But uh, the management, the management think at the time was not adequate to the task of retaining the kinds of industry secrets they needed to retain. So they let the, they let the cat out of the bag and they paid the price. How much time do you have left before you turn into a pumpkin? I got about five minutes. Okay. Can we um, ask questions? Yeah. Can you uh, answer some questions from the members? Absolutely. Well, I've got one if I could start. Well, hi, hi, Howard. It's uh, it's Philip from uh, Retro Gamer Spot. Hey, Philip. How you doing? It's good to see you again. <laughs> yeah, same here. I think it's the first time we actually get to talk face to face, if I may say. That's uh, true. Pixel to pixel. <laughs> I do have a few questions since I've got the opportunity here. I was curious, uh, who who was the person that you were hanging hang out with the most at, at, at the Atari? Any person in particular? Uh, Jerome Demuret, who was my graphics designer and my very good friend, was probably the person I hung out with the most. Okay. Uh, that continued for 30 years. Okay. Uh, he died a few years ago. I actually have his ashes here in this office with me. Really? Okay. A really close friend then. We were very good friends for a long time, and he was he was just a very interesting guy. And uh, on, on another note, any challenges that you had about writing your book? I mean, I'm intrigued about you know how did that went about and uh, um, and how did you overcome them uh, because it's it's not a light project here. No, this was a substantial project. It was about four years in the make. We got two years of collecting notes and really tracking interviews and, and really organizing the material and trying to figure out how I wanted to do it. And then a solid two years of writing. Of course, I was running a full psycho, psych, you know, psychotherapy practice at the same time. Right. But uh, I, the biggest challenge in writing this book is the challenge with any kind of memoir is... Uh, um, losing my ears here the, the big challenge with any kind of memoir is deciding whether or not you're going to tell the truth because at times when i would get blocked there were times where i would just i i didn't know what to do and i couldn't think of how to put something how what how to take the next step writing what i found was that usually the problem I was having in that moment was that I knew what I needed to say, but I didn't know if I was ready to say it. I didn't know if I was ready to tell the truth. I think sometimes the hardest thing and you're really, when you're, when you're telling your story, one of the hardest things there is to do is to decide to really be open, let go of judgment and tell the truth. 
Right, right. You know, what are people going to think of me? Is this going to be okay? Am I blowing it? Am I ruining my life? Am I opening myself to a lawsuit? You know, all these things go through your mind when you're telling stories. And it's like at one point, at several points, actually, I just decided, you know, I just have to tell the truth and let the chips fall where they may because it's going to be lame if I don't. Well, I'm glad and, that you did because I've got your book signed and I really appreciate you sending this to me. Um, the other last question, quick, quick. I know you don't have much time here. Okay, but... I'll, 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 I'll stay on a few more minutes. I'd like <laughs> to get to some more of the questions. I'm curious when uh, Steven Spielberg visited the uh, Terry offices. That must have been quite a big deal. I mean, the that was a time. huge deal, huge and, deal. And uh, how, how was it for everyone working at Terry? Did they all get to meet Steven, or was it just a small crowd? Because I remember I seen a few pictures. So it looks like everybody had a, their chance to to meet. Everybody got to stand next to him and say hi and stuff like that. He didn't have like real conversations with a lot of people, but a, a lot of people got to meet him. Absolutely. And how many times did he visit? Was it was that the only time? Uh, he visited maybe three times. Oh, OK, OK. I was curious about that. Well, thanks again for answering my question. I'll, I'll leave the room for, for other questions. Well, it's nice to see you, Philip. Nice to talk with you. Yes, yeah, yeah, would you like a question? Yeah, I'll be real quick. Um, the, the book is great. Thanks for signing my copy as well at PRG. Um, and quick question, since you mentioned that maybe it'll turn into a movie, have you kept in touch at all over the years with Steven Spielberg? And I have had no contact with Steven Spielberg. No, I would love for him to do the movie. I don't think that's what's going to happen. But <laughs> uh, no, I have. I would have liked to have been in touch with Steven Spielberg, but I have not heard uh, from him since uh, the ET game finished. What one of my well, there's a lot of good lines in the book, but one of my favorites is when you mention uh, when the CEO first tells you that you need to get on a Lear jet to go. Hello, <laughs> and you're like, this is my job, so I, I can. I mean, I can yeah, it was very cool to have that be a work experience, get on a Learjet to go see Steven Spielberg. That that was cool. Well, Thank you, Steven. Thanks. Awesome. Howard, I had a quick question, if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, uh, just uh, what was the name of the book again um, so I could check it out? Oh, the name of the book is Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry by Howard Scott Warshaw. And it's uh, like, so you can find it on Amazon. You can find it at most major book outlets. Uh, the ebook is available, the paperback. You can also go to onceuponatari.com if you want an autographed copy, you can order it through there. And uh, like I said, the audio book is now out on Audible, uh, Amazon and uh, Apple Books, I believe. Oh, awesome, yeah, I'll definitely check it out. And so just about your career and, um... I'm a kind of a game developer myself now, and we have a lot of like tight deadlines. And so my question for you is with the ET game, um, maybe compared, I know you said you're not in the industry now, but compared to nowadays, how did you prepare to make that game? Was it a lot of, did you watch the movie and take notes or was it more of like, um, did you have no time to prepare? I know like a lot of times sprites were done on paper. Could you talk a little bit about that process? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I go into the entire uh, design process and what went on. I mean, the truth is, I got a phone call at like 
mid late late afternoon on a Tuesday, I was told to be on a at the airport Thursday morning at 8 a.m. So I had 36 hours basically to design the game. So I didn't do a lot of mock-ups and things like that. Mostly I just I had seen the movie. I had already seen the movie. I I remember movies a lot. I'm a very big fan of movies. So I just started playing the movie in my head and started thinking, well, where's how am I going to put a game together? What kind of a game am I going to do? What would work? What wouldn't work? Like I said, my whole process is discussed in the book. But basically, I just came down with. I mean, it's a really funny moment where I lay the design out to Spielberg and Spielberg goes, couldn't you do something more like Pac-Man? <laughs> and I was like, really, you want me to do a knockoff for, you know, one of the most original movies? And it's, and that was a big mess. But the truth is, I, I came up with a treasure hunt game because I needed a game that could be done in five weeks. I needed to design something that was doable in that time frame. So I went through a whole thought process of what can I get done in this time frame and how might I make it playable, as opposed to thinking of let's make a really cool game and see how long it takes. I hope that answers your question. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for doing this event. Oh, you're quite welcome. Any other questions? Jonah? It is an absolute pleasure to get a chance to meet you. You are awesome. Oh, thank you. I hope you're not looking for an argument. <laughs> Absolutely not. I didn't come here for an argument. Anyway. Um, <laughs> this is abuse. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, you're a fan, huh? Absolutely. I didn't know, I didn't know if you get it or not, but... I'm a um, huge Python fan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, me too. Would you ever consider, I mean, people make homebrew stuff now. Would you ever consider dusting off the old noggin there and making some homebrew goodies for us? You know, I do think about it at times. I'm, if I were going to do it, what I'm more likely to do is get together with a homebrew developer and help guide the development. I don't know that I want to sit down and actually program a full on game again. I just don't know if I'm feeling that, but uh, I do think about, and in fact, uh, the truth is I'm kind of working out a deal where we're going to do a Yars Revenge sequel. Oh, yes. So there's a design that I've had for a long time. I am looking forward to doing it. None of the stuff you've seen that's Yars Revenge named has been, has involved me at all, other than the original Yars. Right. So. This is a design I have that's very different, but it's it's yards level stimulation and uh, sensory overload. And I think it'd be a lot of fun to do. So I'm looking for a way to put this out so far. And it's uh, so that's coming. Would you be putting this on PC? Can I get it on Steam sort of thing? Probably, it would probably be a Steam thing initially and then might convert to a 2600 card at some point. But initially it wouldn't be just a 2600 release. It would definitely be a, steam with steam deck that's going to be amazing because like you were talking about with the handhelds well that is the ultimate handheld nowadays so can't really beat it and that would be really great to have on there no this would be sweet yeah i'm really looking forward to this if you do make that can i get a signed copy of that i have a feeling that will be able to be arranged awesome how would i go about doing something like that uh, just contact me. You know, you can reach me on Facebook or I'm not a hard person to find online. That's for sure. You can always look at my practice. But when you find out the game's available, contact me and we'll work out getting signed copies. That would be awesome. 
Yeah, Howard, oh, I was going to, one more question. I was going to ask about the release of Yars on the flashback and why you weren't involved. Well, on the flashback system, I didn't really have to be too involved with it because they just took the game and put it on there. It was, uh, was pretty straightforward. And uh, I was just excited that they chose my game for that. That's one of the games to be on. Are there any other Easter eggs out there that we should be aware of or that we can look for? Well, in E.T., there's a lot of Easter eggs in E.T., but one that most people don't know about is that you can find a JMD, which are the initials of Jerome, who was the graphics designer on E.T. And I think it's the only VCS game where you can find the initials of the graphics designer. Awesome. So there's an Easter egg. Thank you, Howard. Thank you so much. It's been you a pleasure are. to get to know you. I enjoyed it too. Everybody, thanks so much. I really appreciate the time. Have a great one. Thank you. Oh, and by the way, we also have released the Spanish version of the book. So if that appeals to anybody, there's a Spanish version of Once Upon Atari called Arase Una Vez Atari. Bueno, muy bueno. What about a French one? Haven't got that one yet. No, oh, that'd be great for Canada. <laughs> Zoot alor. <laughs> Excellent. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much. I'm just reviewing some of the uh, chat stuff.
Good day, this is your friend Carl Siegen. I'm speaking to you via satellite from within the center of Jupiter, or more appropriately, Jupitron. Not to be confused with, yet quite similar to, the video game and also motion picture entertainment Tron. It is very neon here, but that's beside the point. Now, whenever we are riding our, uh, shall we call, surface vehicles around the surface of Jupiter, we are always listening to Man Behind the Machine podcast. Of course, we are about uh, 40 years behind you. However, any day now, we should receive episode 5.